Good morning. Oh. Well, if you have your Bibles, please open up to uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. We are text for today. The title of today's message is The Community Forming and Preached Word of God. The story so far, as we've seen in Nehemiah, is that Nehemiah felt a burden. He saw that something was not right with the world that he was in, and he felt a call from God to do something about it. Now, as we've seen, not everything that is wrong with our world necessarily means that we need to fix all of those problems, right? Certainly there are more things wrong with this world than what we can take care of on our own uh, with even our resources or our time. But Nehemiah did not immediately act in the way that most of us would act. Um, unfortunately, I think sometimes we rush too quickly or we just would sit back and not do anything. I know the danger uh, in my heart is to be too cautious sometimes when God does call us to run with abandon after him and what he is called. He says that he will provide all that we need, so why wouldn't we chase after him? But the first thing that Nehemiah does is get on his knees and pray. And not just once, but for a very long time, for months, he prays to God about what he should do. But he's not only praying, he's planning about what he needs to accomplish. He's planning all of the resources that he'll need, the manpower, the papers, all of the preparation he's doing beforehand so that when the time comes as it does indeed he's ready he's ready to go God grants him an opportunity before the king to speak what is on his heart and he does and he goes he goes and he works and accomplishes this he works shrewdly with all of these plots on his life happening in the background he still is able to lead in such a way that the task gets done. And then get done it does. In 52 days, they repair this wall. Now certainly it's a little bit easier when you don't have to reset foundations or cut all the stone necessarily again. But a lot of it was in rubble. And this is a big wall. And they finish it in 52 days. Why doesn't that happen on North Fairfield Road? It's going to take four months. And they have machines. So, 52 days later, we find that the wall was finished. In chapter 6, we see, so the wall was completed on the 25th of the month, Elul, in 52 days. For what purpose? What was the biggest reason that they wanted to make the wall? Verse 16. And it came about when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations surrounded us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And so we saw last week that after the wall is finished, they begin to reform the community, right? So we saw the census of the first returned exiles. You see all these people coming in and the book of the genealogies, they wanted to find their name in that book for what purpose? Because that book, that genealogy, that formed people of God, that called chosen people of God were the people that God put his hand upon. As we saw in Ephesians later for us in the New Testament, we understand that due to the work of Christ, and due to the entire meaning of the plan of God, we Gentiles are now accepted into that community. 
It's a beautiful picture of a community that has come together and says, yes, we are a people and we are in God's place. They need to be not only just in those two parts of the kingdom, but under God's rule. And so we enter into chapter 8 with an awesome picture of God's rule, God's law, God's word being reestablished. So now that they've repaired a wall, they've repaired a people, it's time to build up these people. And Nehemiah is thinking and saying, we need to teach them how to walk with God. We need to teach them how to obey God. We need to teach them what it means to worship God. We need them to understand what, what God desires for them. What, what is even the, the desires of God's heart? What does he want for these people? That well, seems pretty straightforward. I mean, we know the answer to a lot of those things, right? It's just their spiritual disciplines, stuff that we've heard. So I mean, my question would be, how would you start? If we, if we got to teach people how to walk with God, obey God, worship God, and teach them what God desires for them, how would you start? If you're Nehemiah, what would you do? Some of us would say, well, let's start a prayer ministry. Or maybe small groups, like house gatherings, right? House churches, whatever it may be. You can see an outbreak of those in the New Testament, right, when we get into churches. Well, what does Nehemiah do? He starts a preaching ministry. <laughs> Why? Well, let's clarify. There are 50,000 people, okay? You're not just teaching people how to walk with God, obey God, worship God, and what he desires for them. You're teaching 50,000 people. 50,000 people you have to disciple. How do we get that number? In seven, chapter 7, verse 66 and 67, uh, it says, The whole assembly together was 42,360. That's not 50, I'm aware. I can do math. Ready? Um, of whom there were then female and male servants, 7,337. So we're right at around 50,000 people. Now, just to give you an idea, uh, this is what you would call a big, hairy, audacious goal. You ever heard of a BHAG? All right. My uh, old chancellor, Dr. Falwell, uh, the original, not the son, um, was, was awesome with this stuff. I heard BHAG at least three times a week because of uh, convocation. He was all about big, hairy, audacious goals. You're discipling and in charge of discipling 50,000 people. Where do you start? With a preaching ministry. Kind of. He's not really starting it. It's easy to read this passage and say, well, Nehemiah is the one that's instituting this. It's easy to kind of read it. A lot of the commentators, I think, maybe missed this piece. Some of them uh, talked about it, but most of them just kind of skipped over this. It's not Nehemiah beginning this afresh. And we'll, we'll be tempted to see it that way if we forget that there's more than just Nehemiah chapter 8. Right? We have the whole Bible. We have the Revelation. In fact, Ezra had been here all along since 458 B.C., He's been serving the Lord faithfully by preaching and teaching the word all along. So, I mean, how else is this platform that we're going to read about going to be built for this purpose? How else do you have 50,000 people decide to show up for an event? I mean, they didn't have Facebook and Twitter. You can't just shoot out a social media invite to an event. How are 50,000 people going to get along together in the same place for an event? It's culture and leadership. Ezra had been building culture for 13 years. Ezra had been building the culture in this torn down city for 13 years. And then Nehemiah's leadership alongside of that helps bring together this culture so that it uh, permeates into all of the people. 
So with Ezra having been there already for 13 years, Nehemiah arrives in 445 B.C., and the fruits of Ezra's own preparation and faithful ministry are beginning to be seen. So let's read, our, let's read some of our text, right? In chapter 8, verse 1, it says this. I'm reading from the Holman today. I apologize. I forgot to put the ESV into my notes. So we'll, uh, we'll read in, in the Holman. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which is in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which is in the front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Elkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Mekijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And then Ezra blessed the Lord and great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, by lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Hamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Asaiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Eliah, and the Levites explained the law to the people, while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Ezra has been preparing them for this moment. What's important about this moment? Well, if you follow the timeline from our story, you'll find that they are entering the seventh month. I don't think it was any coincidence that they finished the wall before the seventh month. The seventh month is like the month of festivals for the Israelites, all right? I don't want to uh, belabor a lot of those details. You can find those things in commentaries um, and, and some very uh, interesting and encouraging stuff. But the, suffice it to say, they were supposed to be here ready for this on this day. This is what they did. This is what they did on the first day of the seventh month, or what they were supposed to do every year on the first day of the seventh month. Ezra had been teaching them the Torah for 13 years. It's no coincidence to me that they were prepared for this moment now. Because Ezra had been faithful. It brings a good question to mind. Are you persevering now, even when it's hard, even in a broken down city, even with persecution, even with Sanballat and Tobiah outside the walls for 13 years harassing you simply because they don't like you? Are you persevering now so that when the time comes and people want you to open God's word to them, will you be ready? Will you be ready? Because it takes perseverance now. And we see that even back in Ezra chapter 7, the book before this, as he starts really this whole ball rolling. In chapter 7, verse 10 of Ezra, it says, The good hand of his God 
was on him, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. You see, Ezra had been about the task for 13 years. His heart was set on studying the law. So now when the people are safe from their enemies, they want God's word to direct their lives. I mean, when we get free time, what do we do with that time? What do we view with that time? Some of you may say we don't have free time at all. Okay, Um, that's a crazy busy book by Kevin DeYoung that you should read. Um, That being said, when you have free time, what do you do with it? Uh, Do you view it as an opportunity to drink living water from the Word? The chance to taste what is sweeter than honey? You see, God's people love God's Word, and these people have seen afresh what God can do And they love God's word. They want it. They want it. They gathered as one. And they asked. It can be better translated commanded. (laughs) They commanded Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses. And notice the language even that Nehemiah uses in understanding who all of this comes from. The book of the law is of Moses that the Lord had given to Israel. The emphasis is on God giving a word to his people. Moses was the faithful person, just as Ezra is the faithful person, just as Nehemiah is the faithful person. But it's the Lord's word. He's the one that gave it. God's people love God's word. And so Nehemiah, with this culture having been formed in the background that he has been a part of even, and Ezra certainly has developed, now as the governor and leader of these people, he's saying that God's word is going to determine everything that we do. God's word is going to determine everything that we do. Have you ever thought about this preaching ministry, like what you're doing now? now? What is preaching? If you had to define it for a coworker, if you had to define it for your kid, how would you explain what preaching is? You know, one of the sermon titles that we were kind of messing with for today was how to listen to a sermon. <laughs> how often do you read about that? I mean, most of us assume that we know how to listen, right? Most of us assume that we know how to even take notes. Most of us have been in a classroom of some sort in our adult life. So how often do we listen about listening to a sermon? I don't want to belabor that point today because of what we need to define. What is preaching? What is a preaching ministry? What does it mean to preach? What's the point of preaching? Who is it for? What's the intended effect? A better question, how do you know if it was successful? <laughs> and even then, what is success? Preaching ministry is what Nehemiah wanted to ensure would bring his people forward as he continued to lead them in this exile return. And to give us an idea of what we're looking at in this story as we decide, uh, as we discern really what it looks like preaching is, let's look at the story again. This is all the people gathered as one man at the square. These 50,000 people all gathered in a square. Just to interpret for you what just happened. 50,000 people. To give you a good idea, Great American Ballpark seats 42,000 at capacity. All of you been to a Reds game or seen the field? 42,000 people. Okay, that's all the exiles that returned. Now the servants, another 8,000 people on the field. And no microphone. (laughs) no microphone I can't preach that I'm not loud enough I'm talking really loud right now 
And it probably feels like it's not to you, because that's what everybody tells me. I try to yell, and I sound like a mouse. I can't preach that place. 50,000 people without a microphone, they're all pressed in, and they're saying, give us the Bible. And I want you to know that that's what I felt from all of you this morning, every, every morning that I preach. Is, give us the Bible, Rusty, and it gets me, it gets me juiced to preach. Um, you can encourage Matt with that in the future. I want you guys to uh, encourage our primary preacher. But get the picture. 50,000 people pressed in. I know I'm a little bit bigger than most. Those seats are small. Pressed in. No deodorant, no microphone. Okay? Dungate, somewhere in the nearby area, right? <laughs> For six hours, sun up till noonday. All right, so we're in 11 o'clock service. Uh, we'll be done today at 5 p.m., all right? Just in time for dinner. We'll all eat together, all right? Six hours for like a week. <laughs> That's the picture that we have here. Why? Well, they were ready to go, and they were hungry for the word at 6 a.m. They were ready to go. Think about that next time you're on for roadie crew. Are you ready to go? Are ready to preach? Ready to hear the word? It says that they were attentive. So what does that set us up for today? Our first point, God wants us to know him. God wants us to know him. And he has revealed himself to us. God wants us to know him, and he has revealed himself to us. If you have a Bible, go to Psalm chapter 19 with me. Psalm chapter 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. And in them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end to the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Listen to verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous all together. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter even than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned. And in keeping them there is great reward. For who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, then I shall be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great 
transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do you love your Bible that much? I know it's convicting to me. It's more desirable than gold. We'll work 50 hours of overtime before we read two extra chapters of overtime. The judgments of the Lord are true. Often do we search the scriptures for the judgment of the Lord in our life and then submit to them because they are altogether righteous. <laughs> do you love your Bible? I mean, does your family love it? That's convicting to me. Do your kids even bring their Bible to church? Is it important to you? Is it a treasured possession? It's not the Bible that is treasured. It's, it's who it represents. If God really wants us to know him and he's really revealed himself to us, then where does it come from? You may ask why the Bible particularly is so significant and unique. And we have the psalmist, this is particularly David's words of loving the law, and that can be convincing in and of itself, particularly if you've experienced what he's talking about. But stepping outside of that, can't we learn about God or of God in a plethora of different ways? There's so many different ways that we can learn about God. Well, yes. A theologians would refer you to Revelation, not the book, uh, but general revelation versus special revelation, right? The two different types of revelation. Uh, if, for instance, think of meeting a new person. Once you're done sweating, um, you get into talking mode here, all right? You've met a new person, and you say, hi, what is your name? Don't tell me. The clouds told me. I observed it there. Your name is bleh, right? What about, okay, new person, what do you do? Don't tell me. I observed it in the grass this morning. I saw it. I know. It's good to meet you. My name's up, oh, you probably know, because you also observed it, right? Well, yeah, you're wearing a name tag. Okay, well, that's different. Um, now, the, you can't learn these things, right? That's what we call special revelation. Now, most people in our culture, jeez. You walk up to someone, you can know what kind of gender they are, right? For the most part, I understand. We're not going to talk about that today. Um, for the most part, you can tell what gender a person is. You can observe things about them like their skin color, their voice as you hear it, their um, maybe likes and dislikes if they're wearing a Ninja Turtle shirt or you know whatever it may be, right? I mean, for real, we talk about you know profiling people and you go hipster, uh, Starbucks white girl, uh, right? I mean, you can just profile everyone. That's what's fun about people watching. But we would call that general revelation. There are things about God that we can know from observing the general universe around us. But the Bible is what we would call special revelation. It's something that allows us to know God with specificity. So just as the words that come out from a person as they explain who they are, are invaluable to you as a special form of revelation in that person, God's word is special revelation to us. It allows us to know God, Yahweh, Elohim, with specificity. We know his name only because he's revealed it to us. Moses asked, who will I tell them that sent me? I am. I am sent you. That's how we know who God is. And in his word, we can know him 
with specificity. And it's not just thoughts or opinions about God. Most of our culture has thoughts and opinions about God. But these are special, specific, accurate, true revelations of God. If you have your Bible and you flip over to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us and his son. Flip over to 2 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 21. Let's just start in 20 to prove the point. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So why is the Bible so significant? Why is it unique? Because it's God's Word. And it's not the Bible that we treasure. It's who we treasure. So we can see that God has made himself known in Scripture, but I think the next question should be, how can we be sure, even with this special revelation that he's given us, that we can know and interpret him accurately? Right? Talking about opinions and interpretations of a text, how can we be sure that we know God accurately? Well, primary point I'm going to try to push today is preaching. Preaching is a good way to accurately know him. One of our passages that we just read said he spoke through who? Prophets to reveal himself. Men wrote, moved by God. The prophets preached. The letters that are written in here preached. Preaching is significant itself. It's unique in a different way. You see that preaching is practiced in Scripture quite frequently. And it's even commanded several times. In fact, even part of the Torah is a sermon. Deuteronomy, the entire book, is a sermon. It's basically the second giving of the law. Deuteronomy being two, Anomy being law, second giving of the law. This is Moses' sermon before he's getting ready to pass the reins. So an entire book of the Torah is a sermon that gets read here at the Watergate. We look even then at Pentecost and the New Covenant, if you want to make that argument between the two. And we see that Peter, preaching at Pentecost, at the end it says that they were cut to the heart. And they responded, what must we do to be saved? That's some preaching. So let's talk about what preaching is. Why is it significant and unique? Well, some characteristics of it. Understand that a theological lecture is not a sermon. And this, this preparation for this particular sermon was entirely helpful for me. Because I typically err on this first one. For me, I, I, my preaching used to always be and is moving away from theological lecture. The problem with theological lecture is that it's not preaching in so much that theological lecture is about God's word as a subject. And you're simply just seeking to understand it. Now that's valuable and it certainly has a place and in fact should occupy most of our week. As we do that ourselves. But it's not preaching. It's teaching. Which is okay. That's okay function of an elder, right? That's typically what I, I am more comfortable there. That's where I use 
to live, and I'm trying to been, you know, building my preaching. So it's not simply a theological lecture. Again, on that same hand, it's not just a motivational speech. Even It's not a religious motivational speech. It's not even a religious motivational speech in a church on a Sunday. It's still a motivational speech. The source material is not the Bible. A sermon, a preached sermon, is an event. It is a man who speaks and the people are expecting to hear from God. It should have a prophetic feel. It's not just a man speaking to a crowd. But that crowd is listening for God to speak to them. It's not simply to just inform people, but to transform who they are. And it is a skill. In verse 8, it says that in our main text in Nehemiah, that they read from the book, from the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. I mean, this goes all the way down into the skills of pauses, grammar, volume, pace, distinctiveness. And, unlike those other activities, it is solely dependent on the Holy Spirit. Preaching is altogether different. And yes, you may say, isn't it kind of presumptuous that a man is claiming to speak for God? Isn't it a little arrogant? Um, I've been told that. I, I've been called arrogant. Um, some that I deserved, and I would argue many that I didn't. The question is this. Does it align with what God has already spoken? See, the problem with that argument is if it already aligns with what God has already said, then it carries the weight and authority of God and His Word. What sets apart preaching from any other activity is that you are giving the content and the intent of the passage. What God has already said, we are simply restating and we are giving the meaning. How do you know that you can trust me? We're going to talk about that a little bit more as we go forward. But a large part of it comes through my hermeneutic, my interpretation. Do you trust mine, Matt's interpretation of Scripture? It's based on principle. It's based on our understanding of theology. That's how I know what books I can trust. If I know the author's hermeneutic, then I'll be able to read the book that they're writing much more freely. But if I'm reading something by Rob Bell... I know his hermeneutic. I know his theology. And they're on my bottom shelf, far to the right. All right? I don't trust those books. Why? I don't trust their hermeneutic. I don't trust their interpretation. Now, the difference between Matt and I and a book is you don't submit yourself to a book. You submit yourself to elders. And so you need to trust and choose your elders carefully. I say that with people who are not yet members in here um, for a reason. You, you need to work through those things. So yes, is it presumptuous? A, a little bit that a man could speak for God. But I have no problem saying that I speak for God when I just read his text. I can read Romans 1 to you and say, yes, this is God's word. And I'm speaking on behalf of God because he gave me his word and we can know this person that is God together. And God desires, he wants us to know him and he's revealed himself to us. So let's, let's talk about what does this mean for us. Second point is that a reformer will crave God's word. A reformer will crave God's 
word, and he will seek to understand it. A reformer will crave God's word. Why? Because he's revealed himself to that person. And he will seek to understand it so that he can live it. Now, let me just say as an encouragement, sometimes you just have to push through. Right? Sometimes you just have to push through. I was trying to put the final touches on this yesterday at the table while the girls were napping, the dogs were napping. It was quiet. It was enjoyable. It was a beautiful day. And um, I was all sorts of distracted. <laughs> I had no reason to be, right? Perfect setting, everything. It was good. I was good to go, and I was all sorts of distracted. So for your benefit, hopefully, I recorded my thoughts. My coffee is almost gone. Maybe I should get a cold drink instead. No, it's kind of chilly outside. I like warm right now. I'm kind of hungry, though. I really wish the software would download faster. Maybe it's my computer. It's kind of slow. I wonder how much longer it will last. I've had this keyboard for 24 hours now, and I haven't been able to play a single note. I hope I don't lose the tutorial file. It really should be easy to find if it's a tutorial. I need to check in on my games real fast. But if I eat right now, then I won't be able to type. Type this sermon. Sermon. Go. Coffee's low, though. Maybe I should start the next pot of water. Something will always pull us away. All right? It takes hard work sometimes. But a reformer's heart recognizes the nourishment that Scripture provides. We have to recognize the nourishment of Scripture. Sometimes you just have to push through. I mean, we have to be single-minded in our focus, like a newborn baby craving milk. You should see the acrobatics that Avery, my younger one, can perform from the kitchen to the couch to get the bottle. (laughs) Yesterday, she almost fell out of my arms three times over the course of 15 steps because she was trying to land on this bottle that I'm holding. So I have her here, and she's doing her twisting thing like she needs to play football. And she's like reaching and grasping, and all of a sudden she just goes, boom, and lands right on the top of the bottle. Stays there. (laughs) No milk's coming out, but she's trying. And she stays there until I get to the couch. I'm just looking at her like, settle. It's okay. She craved that milk. She wanted it now. And that one, this is one of the first ones she's actually fed to herself the whole time. She wanted it bad. (laughs) We have to crave God's word like that. Why? Because of the nourishment of Scripture. It's not just an activity. I think for most of us, um, our, our study is too much even of that theological lecture. It's too much of that simply gaining knowledge. God's word warns us so that we live rightly, not so that we simply know more. If we know who we're knowing, we'll understand that it's different than simply just acquiring knowledge. Now write down these passages and check them out later. Deuteronomy 32, verse 47. This is towards the end of his sermon. <laughs> I wish I could say this and feel right about it. So I'm just going to say that Moses says it and feel right about it. He says, these are not idle words for you. They are your life. Can we enter into every time we study the word on, on our own? When you come here on Sunday morning in the car, 
Can you remind yourself that these are not idle words for you? They are your life that changed the way that you took notes, that changed the way that you study through the week. Psalm 17 says that his law, his word, is food for our souls. It nourishes us. It refreshes us. John 21, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, feed my sheep. Give them food. In Hebrews 5, we can see the implication of this by him saying, I wish that I could give you solid meat, but as it is, you can only handle milk. You need to grow in your nourishment so that you can handle more. Scripture is not just something to understand, but it's something to crave. And in preaching, if I'm a Peter feeding a sheep, what am I feeding you if I'm not feeding you God's word? If I want the sheep that God has entrusted me as an under-shepherd to, I've got to feed them food. If I'm feeding you anything else other than Scripture, you're going to be malnourished and you will die. Matt and I have to be careful that the things that we speak about on Sunday are purely grounded in Scripture. That Scripture drives the content and the intent of the sermon. So recognize the nourishment of Scripture. Secondly, understand God clearly. As you seek to understand him, you need to understand him clearly. It says that they gave the meaning so that they understood. They made it clear. Theologians will call this idea of making the, uh, the, the clarity, the clearness of Scripture, the perspicuity. That may sound like a non-clear word, so that can be a mnemonic device that we use to help remember it. But it's not altogether unfamiliar to you. You've heard the word inconspicuous. It's the opposite, right? If you're being inconspicuous, you are trying to not be clear. You're trying to not be obvious, right? Sometimes you just have to push through, look for another word to help you learn things. You're capable of learning these things. Perspicuity is a little bit of a weird word, but you hear inconspicuous all the time, right? Same root word. We call it the clarity of Scripture. You can understand God clearly because he's revealed himself clearly. So how do we understand God clearly? Well, they gave the meaning in their preaching, but then look at verse 3. The people listened attentively. So yes, there's a great deal of burden on the preacher to be effective in what he's doing. But as Jesus would say, those who have ears, hear if you're not listening, it's not going to do anything. I can't simply bypass your brain and go right to your heart. I, I can't. You have to listen attentively. And just to paint a picture here, the group that he's talking about is all the people. All the people. The assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. This is an argument for having children in service. I, we recognize that. That's why we have the cutoff pretty low. But the kids stood there for six hours and listened to the word attentively. 
want to encourage you three different reasons to listen attentively. First one is that it honors God. I've been in a conversation with someone who was really kind of looking past you to see who they were going to talk to next while you were trying to talk to them. I have to be careful with this myself. I'm a lip reader, so I talk to people. I'm not typically always looking in their eyes. I look down at their mouths. So it freaks women out a little bit sometimes, particularly because I'm taller than them. Um, but they keep, like, dropping their head a little bit to try to catch my eyes. It's, I, most people don't realize that. But you do. So if you start, like, breakdancing in front of me, it's because you're trying to catch my eyes. Uh, I'm looking at your mouth, all right? And it's just, I have to be careful because for some people it makes it look like I'm disengaged. Um, so I, I have to be careful of that myself. But when people are talking to you, you want to be locked in, engaged on what they're talking about, not looking to see what else is going on, who you're going to talk to next, not obviously thinking about what you're going to say next, disregarding what they're saying. God's speaking to you. Listen to him. It honors him. But it's not just honoring to God, it's for your soul. Again, these are not idle words for you. They are your life. And then, much in line with the first one, it's encouraging to the preacher. Some of you take too many notes. We have to be careful on how we listen to a sermon. Are you just laying down everything that I say? Or are you listening for the words that bring life? I give Robbie a little bit of grace. He's preparing the lessons for me now. But he can get my notes after service. So we have to be careful that we're listening for words that don't stop, <laughs> that give life, right? We want to listen for the words that give life. It's encouraging to me to be able to catch your eyes sometimes and see that you're tracking with me. When you're asleep and I want to throw an eraser at you like in school, well, it's not entirely encouraging. A discerning listener is going to listen to the message attentively. Why? Because they're going to ask, is the Bible the meat of this meal or is it the salt? Am I being fed a meal of scripture or is it just a meal of opinion with Bible seasoning? Give us an idea be the last time I pull you away from this text. Let's jump to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy, speaking of goodbye letters, Deuteronomy, well, this would be Paul's goodbye letter. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'm going to read some verses. They stood there for six hours. This will take me about three minutes, so um, we'll live, all right? Chapter 3, let's read from 3 uh, until verse 5 of chapter 4. Paul says this, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, gossips, without self-control. They'll be brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They're holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. For among them, are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, 
So these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected as regards the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two came to be. But you, <coughs> you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, my love, you, my perseverance, my persecutions, and my sufferings, such as what happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and with instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Discerning listener, is the Bible the meat of this meal, or is it the salt? Martin Lloyd-Jones and his preachers and preaching book is a relatively famous quote among preachers. <laughs> he says, I would say without any hesitation that the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest need and most urgent need in the church, then it is obviously the greatest need of the world also. He says elsewhere that preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire. This person speaks the truth into a world of lies and deceit. He's taking God's word and he wraps it around your heart. And guess what? It takes more than 140 characters or less. Preaching is a serious activity. It is a serious event. We can't enter into this, into this moment together as a body hoping for a little short piece. I'm not trying to advocate, advocate for 60-minute sermons or anything like that. What I'm saying is that it takes work. It takes work to, to do. It takes work to listen. I guess the final question would be, does it work? <laughs> does preaching really work? If I have to disciple 50,000 people, is that what the strategists are going to tell me, is to just preach the word? 
does it work? The third point is respond and repentance and faith. Should sound familiar at this point. Respond in repentance and in faith. Go back to our text, chapter 8. Starting in verse 9. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. So how did the people respond? Does preaching work? They respond with weeping. They're saying, we've not been living the way that God has said to. They listened to Leviticus on their feet for six hours. And they said, we're not living the way that God wants us to. I mean, we're reading about the Exodus. Look at what God has done. Look at him giving the law at Sinai. Look at what he did with Abraham. Look at how he provided. Look at what God has done and look at where we are. We just came out of 70 years of exile. Look at where we are. Verse 10, he says, Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved. If they were to remain grieved, it would compound the sin that they're even stressing about. It says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival. Because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Preaching works. Real preaching works. How encouraged I am by the fact that there are hundreds and thousands of brothers in their churches today speaking to bodies much like you that are feeding sheep. Preaching works. God designed the church for this purpose. I'm sad for all the people that are hearing motivational religious speeches on church or in church on Sunday. That's not real preaching and it doesn't work. And that is a message of opinions with Bible salt. Going on in verse 13. Then on the second day, the heads of the fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered, says the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. Look at them craving the word. And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. And so the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and even in the square at the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity, 50,000 people made booths, and lived in them. And the sons of Israel had indeed not done 
so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. And he heard from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. You see, the understanding of the word provides and provokes weeping, which is the right response. When we can really say, look at what God has done and look at where we are, weeping is probably the most wise response. Because without the cross, that's a really, really big gap. Without the covenant that Abraham was given, that's a really, really big gap. In fact, it's so big that all of us are without hope. We're eternally separated from God, apart from the work of Christ on the cross. Now, someone who really understands that weeping is going to be the right response. And paradoxically, the right response of weeping opens the way to the freedom to rejoice. For those that respond in repentance and faith that love God, weeping leads to joy. Weeping leads to rejoicing. Why? Because we have hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. We have hope. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What is their hope? Ezra responds in verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your stronghold. Go, celebrate now. This festival is a time of celebration. Why? We're celebrating what God has done. It is a foregone conclusion that we are sinners. So let's celebrate what God has done. You have a beautiful parallel picture of the Israelites having left Egypt in exile, getting the law at Sinai, entering into the land that parallels them having been in exile and coming back to their home. And as God provided for the Israelites in the desert with manna and with quail and the booths, he provided for them while they were in exile, and he has certainly provided for them now while they're back home. And you have this beautiful parallel picture of the entire point of why we have the Festival of Booths. It's to remind the Israelites every year in the seventh month of what God has done. And so the joy of the Lord is your stronghold. The joy, Yahweh's good pleasure. Believe it or not, God has emotions. And God has joy in things. Moreover, God has joy in you if you are a child of his. The stronghold is God's joy in saving and in restoring and in protecting them. I mean, who is more important than God? Can you imagine what it would feel like to know someone was taking almighty joy in you? There's no one more important than God. 
born-again believer, he has great almighty joy in you. I mean, would you believe me if I told you that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, takes almighty joy in those who put their faith in Jesus? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in this coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of work, so we can't boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. You see, God's word makes known God's good pleasure. And God's mighty acts on behalf of his people show them that he loves them. So yes, weeping. Why? Because God did this and look at where we are. Because God provided for Abraham. Because God took them out of Egypt in great power. Because God revealed himself to them. And it's in commandments at Sinai. Because God revealed and showed and displayed all of this. Redeemed believer, he has joy in you. And that's your stronghold. That's what maintains you. That's what holds you. So we can celebrate, even in our sinfulness, what God has done for us. Because what God ultimately did for us is Christ. We can always celebrate that. And so preaching is about making known God's Word. It's about making known what God has done it's about making known his mighty acts and showing what God's pleasure is. Have you ever been in a sermon that just lifted you up out of your seat, took you to the heavenly places where Christ is sit, seating, uh, sitting at the right hand of God, and you hear from God? You leave that place and you're like, I heard from God today. That's what preaching is supposed to be. That's what these people needed. That's what was going to keep these people in God's kingdom. They were in God's place. They were God's people. Now they're under God's rule. And the Holy Spirit does crazy stuff. Preaching trusts us. Trust him completely with that. Guys, we need this, and our world certainly needs this. A community of believers is formed together by God's word. It is knit tightly together by what they believe. As we see 
even in Ephesians, of how we are unified together. We need to understand that we are a community formed by the preaching of God's word. See, the people weep or wept. The people understood where they were. They understood who God was. It was made clear to them what was being said. They understood it, even when they had to have it translated into a different language. And it provoked them to weeping. But he said, no, not yet. We do not want to compound our sin on top of itself. Celebrate now. Celebrate what God has done. There will be a time for confession. Next week in chapter 9, we see the confession of their sins. We see one of the most beautiful pictures of what God has done in the entire Old Testament, in the entire Bible. Short of reading the Torah, this is it. Our last verse of our passage today, and he read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast seven days. And then on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Let's be a people formed by the preaching of God's word. He's revealed himself. He wants us to know him. So know him. Crave his word. Understand that it's your sustenance. It's your nourishment. It's the only thing that will keep you going. These are not idle words for you. They will bring you life. Let's pray together and then we'll be dismissed for the day. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word. Father, the accommodation that you had to, that you had to overcome in order to speak to us humans uh, blows my mind. And Father, that even where we are, we can understand you. That you, you made something as complex as yourself understandable to us, and not even just to us, but to children. Father, the opportunity to know you, I take for granted too much. To, to have your word accessible in a litany of Bibles, and electronic media. Father, to not have to spend three days looking for a passage that I just can't remember where it is, but to be able to find it in an instant. Father, we take that for granted. As people that we read about don't have the Bible, they had forgotten their own language as they were people reclaimed. Father, create in me and in our and our people here a craving for your word. Understand that it's not just idle words. It's not something that will help us. It's not just something that, that gets our day right. It's not just something that we need, but it's something that gives us life. Father, let us see with clarity who you are. Let us see with clarity what we put in place of you. Father, as we shun the idea of reading your word for six hours, yet turn over to the other side of the couch and watch Netflix for six hours. And Father, that we would feel conviction. That we don't treasure your word like it's sweeter than honey. Father, that we desire gold and silver, things that will fade away more than your word, which is everlasting. Father, help us see that your word is simply you. Your word is simply your son. And that, Father, we live in a time of history where we have the Holy Spirit that can help us every 
moment of the day. And God, coming out of Easter, we would see a people that have experienced revival, like these people in our passage, experience revival. Father, that we're not too cool to fall on our faces before the king of the universe. Father, that raising our hands and worship and weeping is not too cool for us. Father, that we can love you in some measure of the love with which you've loved us. Father, I'm thankful for all that you've done. I'm thankful for the people that you have here in this community. Father, let us pray your word as it forms us it forms our families as it forms our church as it forms our community as it forms our world as we live out the clear identities that you've given us and the things that we do every day from understanding your word we love you and we pray all these things in Jesus name Amen